Welcome to the Hearsay Storytelling Podcast. I'm Karen Stein. Hearsay is a monthly show dedicated to the art of telling stories on stage. This episode, Moonlighting, was recorded live at the Workshop Brewing Company in Traverse City, Michigan in January 2019. After the stories, stick around to listen to my conversation with our special guest, Ty Schmidt, founder and executive director of Norte, as we speak about the theme for our next show. In our first story, Christy Prawl reinvents her job description once it becomes clear that going on balloonogram assignments just isn't a good fit. So in 1985, I was a college freshman, home for summer vacation, um, sort of just trying to figure out my way in the world, I suppose. And I was also desperately and clumsily trying to assimilate into the new wave scene of Columbus, Ohio, which was my hometown. Awesome. We'll talk later. So um, I, had the, I had the sort of asymmetrical haircut. I had the big oversized thrift store shirts, the paisley pants, the men's work shoes. And I went out almost every night dancing. I loved to dance. So I'd show up at my favorite dance club, which was close to the Ohio State University campus. I'd come right when they opened. And I would stay until past close because then they would turn the lights up and I could rummage on the dance floor for all the coins that had fallen out of people's pockets when they were dancing. <laughs> and I did this because I knew the value of a dollar. Now, my parents had taught us from a very young age that um, children should not get a free ride in this life. They should contribute to the household income. So I had worked on and off since I was 12 years old. I had babysat, I worked in the public library, I cleaned hotel rooms once for a summer. And of course, this particular summer that I was home after college, I had a summer job. It was a job I was pretty excited about getting. I, it was walking distance from my parents' home. Um, I didn't have to wear a uniform, I didn't have to work in a fast food restaurant like many of my friends. So by night, I would go out with my hair all hairsprayed and my big black eyeliner and dance for hours. But in the morning, I could clean up well enough to go into my respectable day job at the strangest place I've ever worked in my life. It was a balloon store called Balloons on Occasion. So I showed up on my first day of work, very eager. I'm excited. I'm going to make some money for school. And I walk in, they were very kind, they welcomed me, and immediately they handed me a bright red polo shirt with the Balloons on Occasion logo on it and a script. And they said, okay, you're gonna go in the back room right now and Bob is gonna teach you the Balloons on Occasion birthday song and dance because you're going out on a balloon gram later this afternoon. <laughs> Sounds like I don't need to explain this to some of you. Um, if you're not familiar with a balloon gram, it is basically the family-friendly version of sending a stripper to someone's house. <laughs> it's a much more benign version of that, so it's for a birthday or graduation or anniversary, but basically the idea is the same. You go and you ambush the recipient while troops of their friends look eagerly and excited as they suffer something between embarrassment and elation and back again at being the guest of whatever this particular sort of performance is. So I learned that this is going to be my job for the afternoon and I was mortified. Now I know I sort of had the whole kind of like hipster shtick, 
But honestly, that was a kind of costume I hid behind. I was then and am now, am now very much an introvert. And I did not like undue attention being drawn to me. I had done a little bit of theater in high school, but with all due respect to my um, high school drama coach, having the lead in the diary of Anne Frank is not exactly a transferable skill to delivering balloon grams. But I had a very strong work ethic and I was gonna give it my all. So I went in the back room and this guy, Bob, he kind of taught me the song, taught me the dance. We blew up a dozen colorful helium balloons, loaded them into the van. They bounced around the van the entire time we drove downtown. You couldn't see out the back window, but we lived to tell the tale. We get to this high-rise building in downtown Columbus, get out of the van, and you, know, you can see people all through the parking garage saying like, ooh, something really exciting is about to happen here. And little by little, I'm getting more and more anxious. And we're going up the elevator, and I'm feeling all of my new way of cred, like, seeping out through my ankles. I'm like, I've got this horrible polo shirt on and I'm about to go do this performance. So we get to the office building, we ask for the guest of honor, his name was, let's say, Roger. And I am so prepared to belt out this song like Mariah Carey. <laughs> and I get there and I instead screeched out some semblance of the song I had sort of partially learned that afternoon. I forgot words. Now, I have never been able to carry a tune. I was always stuck in the alto section in like elementary school choir, because that's where they put people who can't sing. And I'm trying, you know, I'm singing this song, and then I'm trying to do this dance as I'm holding this bouquet of balloons. The ribbons are getting knotted together. I'm afraid the balloons are gonna pop. And all I can think about are these dozens of eyes looking at me saying, we paid good money for this? <laughs> But I soldiered on, and I delivered the balloons, and then Bob and I went and got back in the van, and he just took one look at me and shook his head and said, don't worry, we'll work on it. <laughs> so working on it was exactly the last thing I wanted to do, so I knew I needed to hatch a plan. And my plan was to make myself indispensable in the retail section of the shop. <laughs> now the only way to do that, I figured out, was to learn to sell anything, and I mean anything, over the telephone. Uh, by the end of that summer, I could have sold you a dead possum and it would have felt like the best day of your life. <laughs> now this again was the mid 80s, and so it was the age before the internet. People didn't just go online and order up one of these things, they picked up the telephone and made a phone call. And if they happened to call the balloon store where I, store where I worked, and I happened to be the person answering the phone, the conversation might go a little something like this. Oh, you want to order a balloon bouquet for your sister for her birthday? That is so nice. Tell me a little bit about your sister. What does she like to do in her spare time? What are her hobbies? She plays tennis? That is so cool. That's so healthy. Good for her. You would not believe it, but we have this amazing line of German teddy bears. They each have a different theme, and one of them plays tennis. It is the cutest thing you've ever seen. It's got a tennis racket in one hand, a little um, tennis skirt on, and if you like, we could tie that balloon bouquet to its other paw and deliver it to her for something she will never forget. And nine times out of 10, that caller would say, that sounds adorable. I've got to have that. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. I never had to deliver a balloon gram again. <laughs> so it got to the point where I was so good at this that, um, you know, again, 
we had no cell phones at this point. We, our, our phones were connected by a cord to a receiver, so I had to pick up the phone. And just from the verbal cues in my voice, my coworkers would run around the store and pick up whatever like gimmicky coffee mug or like scented candle or stuffed elephant in a hat that might be the right gift to go along with this balloon gram. And I was able, in most cases, to kind of make that sale. So you may be getting the impression this place was its own special kind of crazy, and you would be right. I think the way to fully understand the insanity of this shop is to understand its cast of characters. So Balloons on Occasion was owned by a woman named Cheryl. She had been a prima ballerina in her youth, but had to quit dance um, because she actually developed early onset arthritis. And this was the great tragedy of her life. So the store's success was everything to her. It was just the sum total of her identity. Now we were located right next door to an independent movie theater. And every once in a while, a couple would come in browsing before their show. And if they so much as spent two seconds looking at, let's say, a stuffed cat on the shelves and then walked away, Cheryl would go up to that stuffed cat, take it off the shelf, cradle it like it was her firstborn child, and approach the couple talking to the cat. Oh, what's that you say, little kitty cat? Meow, meow, meow. Oh, you want to go home with this nice couple? Oh, I understand. They seem like such nice people. And they seem like they need a stuffed cat just like you. I bet their house is very warm, not like this cold store overnight. Oh, I understand. Meow, meow, meow. You would love to make them your parents. And then she would hand the cat over to the couple in hopes that they would bond with this stuffed animal and take it home, make this purchase. So I saw this ploy work exactly zero times in my <laughs> tenure at the shop, but it did not deter Cheryl. Again, she became the queen of the hard sell, and come hell or high water, she was going to make this work one day. Now, our store manager was a woman named Diane. She was probably in her early 60s, had kind of a, an auburn, fright wig, curly sort of hairstyle, and she wore a house dress and orthopedic shoes to work every day, and she was also a born-again Christian. So every once in a while, she would put the back in five minutes sign on the front door of the shop and take us all into the back room for a prayer circle. Um, so I am an atheist, I respect faith traditions very much, but I myself am an atheist, but I also, as you now know, I don't like a lot of attention drawn to me, so I would go along with these prayer circles, sort of praying in my own way that they would be over as soon as humanly possible. <laughs> and we also had all of our folks in the field um, who would deliver the balloon grams. Many of them were aspiring theater students, to whom I am eternally grateful, because they took one for the team and prevented me from having to suffer any further indignation. Now, I remember a lot from those days in the shop. Um, the store was actually infested with mice. <laughs> so every morning, it was someone's job to come and clean a dead rodent carcass out of a snap trap and reset it for the next day. That was a great memory. Um, I remember the PTSD that I suffered for years afterward at the, just the mere sound of a popping balloon or anything that resembled the sound of a popping balloon. And I also remember, actually, my worst day on this job. It was a day when the phone rang, and I gleefully went over to answer it, thinking, OK, what's my sale going to be today? And at the other end of the line was a woman's voice shaking. And she said, 
I would like to order 40 black balloons to deliver to the witch who's been sleeping with my husband. <laughs> and I, um, I just said, um, I'm going to need to put you on hold. And to my credit, I didn't say, would you like an adorable stuffed black cat to send along with those 40 black balloons? Instead, I realized, I am 18 years old. This is my summer job, and this is way above my pay grade. I'm like, I need some help. So I went into the back room to see who I could find. I was looking for someone, anyone, to kind of get me out of this situation. And the person I found in the back room was Diane, our born-again Christian store manager. And I said, um, Diane, I need some help. And I kind of gave her the 411 on the call, and she said, okay, I can take this one. So I followed her back up to the front room where she got on the phone, and for the next 15 minutes, I listened as she talked this woman off the ledge. She started by just extending sympathy to this woman. Oh, sweetheart, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry for what you're going through. I, I can't even imagine how painful this must be for you. And then she started to offer solutions. Um, do you go to church? Do you have a pastor you can talk to? Um, do you see a therapist? Maybe, maybe a family friend or, or a sister or someone in your family can come over and spend some time with you this afternoon until you're feeling better. And I continued to listen as Diane's voice got slower and calmer and quieter and steadier to, in response, I think, to what I imagined this, this woman's voice kind of getting calmer and slower and steadier and quieter. And by the end of that call, she had talked that woman out of those 40 black balloons, which was no small thing because the store was struggling and that would have been a significant sale for the day. But Diane knew that this call had a greater purpose for her. And I learned so much from listening to her that day. I, I learned that I knew how to sell anything over the phone, but I didn't know the first thing about how to heal people who were suffering. I could turn on the pitch, but I didn't know how to let the pitch go for the greater good. And it's interesting now to kind of reflect back and realize at that time I was actually studying advertising, but my career took a pivot. And for the last 25 years, I've actually worked in nonprofits and philanthropy. And I credit Diane for some of that sort of rethinking of my, of my professional plans. Now, as much as I love my work, I do admit having a certain degree of envy for a few of my friends who um, have gone on to be professional writers. And I do actually have a couple of friends who've done this. They, um, they make a living doing what they love. They are able to put a little bit away for retirement. And they're doing what they were born to do. And it makes me think about people like my father, for example, who wanted to be a high school social studies teacher but um, he ended up going into the insurance business because he had a family to provide for. And I think about the retail store owner who would have much rather been dancing Swan Lake to an auditorium full of appreciating spectators. And I think about the store manager who probably would have loved to have become a minister. And if this is resonating for any of you in this room, um, those of you who kind of feel like maybe you're you're moonlighting from the job that you were born to do, the job that you, you wish you could be doing, I guess I sort of have this wish for us all, that inside of us all, we kind of each have that inner stuffed cat who is not saying to us <laughs> in a quiet voice, 
I want to go home with you, meow, meow, meow. But is instead saying in a loud roar, I am an aspirational bobcat, and come hell or high water, I am going to find my way to that stage, or that classroom, or that pulpit, or that bookstore shelf. Because damn it, that is what I was born to do, and that is the thing that is going to feed what Mary Oliver would have called this one wild and precious life that we all have. Meow. Thank you. In the next story, Stewie McFerrin would like his job with a fishery way more if there weren't so many dangers on the job. All right, uh, nice to see everybody. I want to tell you a jo- uh, story tonight um, about, well, every job has a job description. And I got a job with a job description. Um, it's every day you get a boat ride and a picnic. And I thought, that's awesome. I love boat rides. <laughs> I love picnics. Um, but it didn't actually turn out that way. I was working. <clears throat> uh, so before I took this job, um, I was working up on Pyramid Point in a place called Innisfree. And it was an environmental program for, for kids. And it was, it was a lot of fun. We, had, we were famous. I think we're still famous for our frozen zoo. And the frozen zoo was an old popsicle freezer, and it had some lid, some lids on it. So you can open up the lid, and there's all kinds of frozen animals in there. <laughs> and and we'd, we'd take them out to show to the kids. And so you could reach in there, and, and uh, you could get, come out with a big trout, you know, and, and take it up and show it to the kids. And they were like, Wow, that's an awesome trout. And, and we had a raccoon, you know, you could reach down, <laughs> grab the raccoon and pull that out. And then there was, there was a bunch of birds in there. And, and the, but the problem was the small animals like the, the warblers and stuff, they would fall to the bottom of the, of the popsicle freezer. And, and you, when you're done with a trout, you'd throw it back in there and it would crush the warbler. And... <clears throat> But the, the big problem with the frozen zoo, or the thing that you really had to watch out for, was there was a porcupine in there. <laughs> and so you had to be really careful, because if you grab that porcupine, you could really, really have some trouble. But, so, but, but Innisfree was an awesome place. It was up on Pyramid Point in Leelanau County. And <clears throat> I worked there for, for you know, quite a while. But then, then I was offered a job up in Leland um, uh, working for Lang Fisheries. And, you know, like I said, the, that was a job description. Um, every day is a boat ride and a picnic. And, and um, so I, I went to work for Ross Lang. And it so happened that his friend Nick had a place um, on the dock there. It was right next to the Falling, Falling Waters Lodge. And <clears throat> so, so I rented that place, and it was the shortest commute I ever had, you know, because I literally had to walk about 10 feet down to the boat, and, and which was great. I mean, it's awesome having a short commute. But on the other hand, if I overslept, Ross would come up to my door, bam, 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 <laughs> wake up, we're going, you know. And so anyway, 
um, and this was back in the 80s, and I don't know if anybody remembers, but the water was really high and even higher than it is now. And, and um, one of the, so we had this little shack where, where we'd, you know, work if the weather was bad and, you know, fix the nets and stuff like that. Um, and the water sometimes would come up, you know, it was lapping right at the boards. And, and then I, I know we spent a couple days, you know, jacking up the shack, you know, trying to, trying to make it taller so, you know, it wouldn't flood. And I started to, you know, look at the boards outside of my little apartment, which was right above the river. And, and the boards would, you know, start getting a wash. And there was, there was a little lip to the front door. It was about that high. And the, you know, the water started coming up and lapping at the, at the front door. Uh, but I thought, ah, there's no way it's going to go higher than that. And so anyway, we were, um, you know, we'd, I would go out with Ross and we'd check the nets out by um, Manitou Island. And, and it's true. I mean, you know, every day was a bow ride and, and we did have lunch. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> that was kind of like a picnic. And, and, um, and a couple times, I don't know, when he was in a good mood and we got a really nice trout or something like that, he put it in tinfoil, put some salt on it, and then put it on the, the top of the muffler of the diesel engine. <laughs> and, and, you know, would sit there while we were, while we were running. And, and it was really good. I mean, it was, it was a great picnic. And um, so anyway, um, we, you know, I worked there for quite a while. And, but one night, um, I was, I w it was a tiny little apartment and, and there was a, there's a tall bed with some drawers underneath it, so you actually had to kind of climb up in there. And one night, um, I was sitting there watching TV, and all of a sudden it got really cold. And I looked down at the floor, and the water was running under the door. The water was running into the apartment. And so, that you know, and, and the lights started to flicker. And, and I had this, I just had this thought of, of being on the boat. So, so when, we're, when you're on the Francis Clark, that was the name of the boat, it's one of those old enclosed um, tugs, mm -hmm. uh, Great Lakes tug. And so the whole cabin was enclosed and the diesel engine was under the floor. And, and Ross had just showed me this valve that was, was down by the diesel engine. So you'd climb down in there and if you were washing off the deck, you'd open the valve. And so while the, while the boat was running, you know, while it was moving forward, you could open that valve. And the water you used for washing the deck would run out that valve. And, and it worked great, you know, because everything would run out. But then, then I had this thought, well, what if we forgot and left that valve open? And then the boat stopped. It would sink. And, and I was thinking... So if that happens, how am I going to get out of this boat? Because it was all enclosed. There's just a few windows. And it was just kind of a terrifying thought because, um, you know, there was, you know, I thought I could get out, but maybe I couldn't. So anyway, I'm sitting in bed, and there's, in my apartment, and there's water running under the floor, onto the floor. And, and um, 
the, the, there's a wicked storm outside and the boats that are tied to the dock are bumping against the dock and the whole house is kind of shifting. And I just had this moment of terror of like, I'm, I'm sinking in my apartment. <laughs> and, but anyway, uh, um, the, the apartment was, was on big pilings and then I realized there's no way it's gonna sink. So I just, you know, went to sleep. And then, <laughs> but, then but then the next morning um, I woke up and the water had gone down some, but it was, you know, real soggy. The carpet was real soggy. And the landlord, Nick, came over and helped me, you know, get it cleaned up. And, and then, and I worked there for another two weeks or so. And then I got flooded again. Um, and and um, I realized it was, it was time to go. So, so I, I quit that job. Um, but it was an awesome experience working with Ross Lang. He was, he was an incredible person. Um, I've never known anybody to work that hard. Um, and he was really on the edge because he was, he was a commercial fisherman and the only thing he made was, was you know, selling the fish that, that we caught. And, and uh, so anyway, I quit that job and then um, I did find out, I think it was a couple years later that he had, he had died on the job. Um, he had, you know, I don't know all the details, but um, uh, it was, so that job was not just a boat ride and a picnic. Next, Anne Bonney takes a job ushering plays to increase her cultural awareness and her dating prospects, but one particular show catches her by surprise. So in my late 20s and early 30s, happy hours were my regular evening ad adventure. <laughs> um, and when I hit 33, I decided that it was time to infuse a little bit more culture and class into my life. Um, I was interested in doing something a little bit more interesting and stimulating, but you know, I'll be honest, I wanted to find somebody that made some money and had great future potential and was sophisticated, you know, future boyfriend. So, um, and I knew that uh, I wouldn't be able to hold up my end of an interesting conversation if it was just drunken nights at the sticky floored crusty clam that I had to talk about. Plus, I knew that the guy that I was looking for with great potential wasn't going to be hanging out in Baltimore dive bars. So this was a great plan in theory, but let's also be honest, happy hour is built for a specific set of budgetary parameters. <laughs> Higher level sophistication requires a little bit more investment, and so thus there was a bit of a kink in my plan. So one Sunday I was doing another budget conscious activity, perusing Craigslist for a new couch. And I came across an ad for a little quick gig, free tickets to theater in exchange for ushering. Awesome. I could take people's tickets, show them to their seat, and get to see the show for free. Perfect. So I ushered a Shakespeare show. I waited for Godot. I stayed awake through an avant-garde and molasses-paced drama about a man who fell in love with his Mont Blanc pen. I was feeling more... Oh, I wish I made it up. 
I was feeling more and more sophisticated with each show, <laughs> and I even talked up a relatively handsome young man in a three-piece suit on his way to his seat, and he said, maybe I'll see you after the show, and I thought that was promising. I couldn't find him after the show, but, you know, it was the closest encounter to potential I had had in the three years since I moved to Baltimore. So about a week later, I found another show uh, at the same theater where the Shakespeare show was. And the title had penis in it, but I thought immediately about the vagina monologues. And I thought, it must be something like that. This is a dramatic piece um, about women's experience with consensual sex and non-consensual sex and sex work and genital mutilation and all this stuff. And I figured this show was a similar exploration of the male sexual experience you know, and I'd hear stories about male sexual dysfunction and maybe a man's discomfort with traditional gender roles and things like that. And I would get to understand better the sexual experience of the man. So I immediately, of course, applied to Usher. <laughs> Counter to my plan to act in a little bit more of a sophisticated and highbrow way, I called my friend Corey and offered to sneak him into the show. <laughs> now, Corey had a PhD in nuclear chemistry. He, was, he had worked overseas, he was interesting, he kind of was sophisticated, he was smart and he was fun, and I figured there's some boyfriend potential here, right? So I had the whole evening planned, we'd see the show, then we'd go find some dark romantic bar and sip martinis and talk about the sexual and psychological experience of being a man. <laughs> so we got to the show. Right before the doors closed, Corey came in just as planned. I pretended to take his ticket, and we went in, sat in the back row. The lights went down. Some Rocky-esque music came on, and two hairy-legged men came walking on stage with long red cape wrapped closely around them, and they stood in front of the two microphones in the spotlight. And they tapped their toe as the audience was cheering, and it was exciting. And then the music went down, and the audience quieted. And the two men looked at each other, they nodded, they looked back at the audience, and one of them said, a little too loud, and in a very strong Australian accent, all right, mates, let's get this party started. And they simultaneously whipped their capes over their shoulders, exposing completely naked bodies. <laughs> to paint a clear picture, they also had socks and shoes on. So they're standing there, hands on hips, and the cameras that I hadn't seen that were pointed right at their man packages clicked on, displaying said man packages in Times Square-esque perspective on the big screens behind them. They're standing there, hips thrust out, glancing back at the monster Johnsons on the back screen. <laughs> and everybody's laughing and laughing, and I am not laughing. <laughs> I was standing there with my mouth open and my eyes wide, and I turned to look at Corey, and he's doubled over, and he glances at me, and tears start flying down his face. He's trying to catch his breath, and I caught my attention back to the stage when the other guy says, and now we will show you the magical pliability of the male genitalia. I glanced down at my program, and the name of the show slaps me in the face. 
puppetry of the penis. It was somehow lost on me that a show called Puppetry of the Penis would include actual puppetry with actual penises. <laughs> to my defense, there was a serious Shakespeare tragedy that took place on that stage three weeks earlier. <laughs> so for the next 90 minutes, they bent and twisted and squashed and pulled all of their stuff in shapes beyond my wildest imagination. One of the ones that I was very memorable was the baby bird. And <clears throat> now I don't have a penis, so I've never done this. <laughs> but it is burned in my head. So if you have one and you want to try it at home, sir, this is how you do it. So you basically grasp the opening at the top and bottom of the foreskin. Oh, and you need foreskin for this. So if you're <laughs> circumcised, I'm sorry. Top and bottom, thumb and forefinger on your right and left hand. You pull forward as far as you can so that the head of the penis is outlined by the foreskin. And then you simply open and close like the mouth of a bird. <laughs> Again, I wish I could make it up. <laughs> Another one that was burned into my head was the Eiffel Tower because it was uncanny how well they made it look like the real thing. <laughs> so there we are. And I'm still, everybody's laughing, and I am still just in shock after about six or seven of these things. And I turn to Corey and I whisper, you can do that? And he smirks and shrugs and says, for a little while. <laughs> and I finally busted out laughing. And it had dawned on me that the guy would do one or two and then he'd run off and the next guy would run on and take over where he left off. So apparently Corey was right. You can only manipulate it for a while before the phallus gets a little less pliable. <laughs> You'd think I'd know that. <laughs> So there we are, sitting in the back row, two clearly intoxicated, naked Australian men on stage playing with their man tools. I finally realize I am not in for a night of serious theater. <laughs> so for the grand finale, they both come out, and they do for us the hamburger. So basically for the hamburger, you take your left hand, grasp the scrotum at the body, pull it up and forward, then twist it so the left ball's above the right. Then you take the penis, wrap it around so it's nestled between the orbs, tuck the tip of the penis into your left fist, squeeze it, give it a little squish, and then release your right hand with a flourish. I think you've done it before, haven't you? <laughs> he was laughing just a little too hard. <laughs> so as we, as we left the theater, my sides were aching, and I commented to Corey that I never imagined there would be theater like that, or that guys could do that, or that guys would do that. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he said, of course we do. You mean you wouldn't go home and do a hamburger right now if you could? 
said, yeah, yeah, I would. <laughs> so I did not learn what I thought I was going to learn that night, but I certainly left with a lot more knowledge of the male experience than I knew before. So instead of martinis, Corey and I went to a local taqueria and we had margaritas with an extra shot of tequila. We laughed about the whole night over messy nachos and I realized I was having so much more fun than on any other ushering night that I'd been on and on any other of those highbrow dates with sophisticated guys where I was trying to be somebody else. And it occurred to me that maybe I could find a partner that was sophisticated and smart and interesting and had great potential and could still laugh at some good old fart and poop jokes. <laughs> Maybe being sophisticated didn't mean that you had to be boring and stuffy and serious all the time. I mean, steak and Shakespeare is great, but maybe it was okay to leave a little space for a good old hamburger every now and then. <laughs> Thank you. Next up, Heather Hudson finds love at a Mackinac Island t-shirt shop. In the spring of 1997, I was living in downtown Flint with Jeffrey and Angie, two of my coworkers at Chili's. My roommate Angie and I decided to quit our jobs and move to Mackinac Island for the summer. We were hired at the Pilot House restaurant located in the Lakeview Hotel. It was owned by a couple from somewhere in northern Michigan called Bel Air. <laughs> never heard of it. I literally had never heard of it. The staff was fun and the money was decent. The staff housing was on the opposite side of town from the restaurant. Over 100 people lived in a three-story building close to the Mission Point Resort. My favorite time of day, minus the sleep deprivation, of course, was the mornings I worked the buffet and had to be there by 6 a.m. The bike ride in was really quiet. The lake was flat and sparkled with morning sunlight. The downtown streets were still wet from being hosed down from just being hosed down, and the only sound was the gentle clicking of the horse hooves. The overall feeling was peaceful. Granted, sometimes that was followed by me curling up under the buffet table for a nap. <laughs> After setting up breakfast, sometimes I was still there as they were plating. <laughs> because I was out until 3 a.m. the night before. I mean, when you're 21 and you're living on an island, you sleep when you can. For the first six weeks, I would work Thursday night to mor Monday morning. And Monday night, I would, I would take the ferry back to the mainland in Mackinac City, collect my Smurf Blue Pontiac Grand Prix from the long-term parking lot, and drive back to my house in Flint. While Angie and I were on the island, we subletted our rooms. Angie let her room to her best friend Dawn, who was a fun-loving hippie chick whose name 100% suited her. She was dating this hairy beast of a guy that I went to college with, and they liked to lay naked in the backyard and look at the stars. Then they would walk around the house naked and strike up conversations with me. <laughs> the vision of his hairy backside is still burned in my brain to this day. I rented my room to my buddy Brady, who was studying sound engineering. He had a radio show on the local broadcasting station and was a, a white rapper. He was friends with many local, many local rappers and also gang members from the Mexican Cobras. And they would sometimes have parties in our basement. 
which is also where our gay, gay roommate Jeffrey lived. <laughs> Needless to say, we had an interesting mix of folks coming in and out of that house. I came back each week to attend my Tuesday and Thursday class at the University of Michigan Flint. After class on Thursday, I would drive back to Mackinac City. I got so I could make this trip in two and a half hours. That's right. Smurf blue. I did this by finding another car traveling over 90 as my rabbit and letting him take the lead. And then we would let off the gas at every turnabout. And somehow I never managed to get a ticket that summer. Once the semester was over in June, I got to enjoy the island a little more. I settled in, and now I had time to get a second job. There was a Mackinac Island shirt shop that I could see into from the bar area. And on my first day I was working, I worked with this guy named Andrew. He was cute, he had nice biceps, which was really important to me. <laughs> Come on, I'm 21. He was a year older, and he had a smart and sarcastic sense of humor. He had this fascinating way of explaining to tourists how the Mackinac Bridge would swing over to the island <laughs> at different intervals during the day, and then he would write out the schedule for them so they could catch it later that afternoon. <laughs> totally. He... He had worked on the island the previous summer, and so he knew it pretty well. Now that I was living there full time, I wanted to explore it, so I asked him if he would go with me on a bike ride around the island um, after work that day, and he agreed. I would later find out that he already had a date planned for that night, but he liked me so much he decided to cancel that and go with me. By the time we made it most way around the island, it was dark, and bats began swooping over our heads, so I was a little bit freaked out. So we stopped to rest before making our way back into the street lamp-lit downtown. Where we had stopped, we could see the lights from St. Ignace across the Straits of Mackinac, so we decided to pull off the road and sit on a rocky beach and talk. We talked for a couple hours, asked and answered all sorts of questions about family, work, college, careers, goals, and dreams. It was there with the illuminated Mighty Mac Bridge, the lights of St. Ignace, the bright moon and the clear starry night, while the waves gently lapped at our feet, <laughs> that we had our first kiss, and our second, and our third. <laughs> From that day forward, through the rest of our time on the island, we were together every day. We were speed dating on island time. <laughs> In the regular world, when you first start dating somebody, you might only see them a couple of times a week. On an island, there isn't anywhere else to be. <laughs> so relationships tend to mature faster. We spent our days working. Andrew also worked at a marina. We were taking bike rides deeper into the island, having picnics on Pierre Marquette Park going out to the bars at night and sometimes 
we would dance to slow songs like Lady in Red and The Way You Look Tonight that wafted down from onto the grassy lawn at Old Mission Resort from some wedding that was happening. <laughs> As the summer was winding down, we went with some friends in a very small metal boat over to Round Island. It was really scary. It was dark and foggy, and we were crossing a shipping lane. <laughs> we could hear the horn and the sounds of the freighter, but we couldn't see it. <laughs> we did make it safely to the other side. Once there, we broke off from the group and walked closer to the Round Island Lighthouse. And it was there that we decided that we would continue to date when we left the island. And we did stay overnight, so it was daylight when we went back. So easier to see giant freighters. <laughs> when it was time for me to leave the island, Angie had decided to stay the rest of the season. She had also found a man. It's the place to go. <laughs> to spend her island days with, and at the end of the season, they moved to Arizona. By doing this, and that's how they did that. I was sad to leave our little romantic island and head back to what seemed like reality. It was a fun place to be if you were 21, and I would not ever encourage my children to work there. <laughs> I know too much about what happens after the last boat leaves the island. At the end of August, I returned to Flint to finish my last year of college, and Andrew had to return to Big Rapids where he was attending Ferris. Over the next few months, we traveled back and forth on weekends to see each other. The following spring, I graduated, and I planned to take a summer job in Charlevoix with the same shirt company that we had worked, on, on worked with on Mackinac Island. The plan was to be the assistant manager there for the summer, and then in the fall, I would move over to their store in Colorado Springs to manage the store there during ski season. I wanted to do something fun with the time I had after spending so much time going to school and just working really hard. My brother, who was three years younger than me, was also planning to move there with me. We were excited about this plan. Just after my graduation in May, Andrew came for a visit. We went out, on, went out to a comedy show with a college friend, Matt. Throughout the night, I was telling Matt about my plans for the summer and about Colorado. And apparently, when I left to use the bathroom, Matt looked at Andrew and he said, you know, if she's going to Colorado, she's not coming back. And he was like, why? He said, the, re the relationship will not survive the distance. And she will fall for some long-haired bohemian ski bum with nice biceps. <laughs> that night, when we got back to my parents' house, we sat in the car talking. It was a clear, moonlit, starry, warm night. The conversation eventually led to what Matt said. And my response was, well, what do you want me to do about it? <laughs> it's me. And he said, I don't want you to go. Let's get married. <laughs> After thinking on it for a minute, I said, OK. The next day, we bought a ring. And the day after that, he asked my dad for my hand. But prior to that, my dad was watching Whale's Mate on the Nature Channel. 
and he was trying to interject, and my dad's just like, can you believe these whales? And <laughs> Speaking of sperm, sir. <laughs> Decision made. I had just over four months to plan our wedding happening in October. I stuck with my plan to work in Charlevoix. It meant I got to live with my grandparents in Boyne City, which was a wonderful time for us to reconnect. The months working three jobs, those being the shirt shop, Whitney's Oyster Pub, and Michelle's Hat Shop, and living with my grandparents was a time filled with new friendships, shenanigans, life cereal, and grandparent roommates. It is a time I will always treasure and certainly is a story for another day. On October 3rd, 1998, Andrew and I were married. Our wedding was beautiful and the reception was an all-out dance party. It was a fantastic celebration for all the hard work I had done in my life up to that moment and the kickoff to the beginning of a new life together. I now look back on that night sitting in the dark car in my parents' driveway, talking about me staying and us getting married as my sliding door moment. If I say no, my brother and I head to Colorado to see what adventures that leads to. Much to my brother's dismay, I said yes to the marriage and no to Colorado. Because we didn't go, my brother ended up eventually marrying the girl he was dating too. Had we left, neither one of us likely would have married those people that we were with, which was, as it turned out, we both unfortunately ended in divorce. But had I not chosen the yes door, I wouldn't have been married for 12 years, which honestly had more good times than bad, and we wouldn't have had two amazing, hilarious, and kind children. I wouldn't have all my friendships, adventures, heartaches, failures, triumphs, growth, and life-altering experiences that made me into the person standing before you today, in this minute, this second, telling this story, in this room, with you. So if given the chance to do that moonlit night over again, I would still say yes. In the next story, John J. Klapko finds out the hard way that a few drinks might not be the best way to kill time between shifts at different jobs. Thank you. Uh, so, God, there's a lot of people. Picked a, picked a bad month to quit drinking. <laughs> um, so I studied theater after high school against the advice of pretty much, yeah, 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 against the advice of pretty much everyone in my life. Um, and my, my job history definitely reflects that. I won't, I won't list all the jobs, but I mean, most of them were pretty crappy. A lot of crappy jobs, a lot of crappy days at crappy jobs. One time I drove to Ontonagon without a license to be a singing telegram. Um, I almost got my head blown off, no joke, shooting fireworks. If you shoot fireworks professionally, you call it pyrotechnics, because that sounds nicer. Um, most recently, I almost cut my finger off on a bandsaw. Um, 
but the the shittiest, most awful day I've ever had uh, was December the 11th, 2011. I was living in New York at the time uh, and working two jobs, like most people do there. Uh, and, but I was also trying to run a theater company with some friends from college. Big surprise, the theater company didn't make any money. <laughs> uh, but my other two jobs, uh, cutting fish and cater waitering, afforded me a, a nice couch <laughs> in a three-bedroom apartment with three other people and two cats. A big couch. I could stretch out on this thing. On a couch that nice, you don't really need a bed. I, I, was, I, was, I was constantly broke. Always, always broke. I hadn't even started to pay off my, my college debt. And the only time I wasn't smoking was in between putting out an old butt and lighting a new one. Most of my calories came from Coors Banquet beers. Those are the, those are the cans, the gold cans, and they're a buck fifty. The really good deal. Um, and I just, I thought, <laughs> I thought that's what my life was going to be for like, ever until I got a lucky break or until I got hit by a bus. There were days where getting hit by a bus would have been a lucky break. Um, <laughs> it wasn't that bad. Um, so job number one, cutting fish, started at 7 a.m. But I had to be up at 5 to make it to Brooklyn on time. Now at 27, it's impossible to go to bed before 12.30. At least it was for me. So when I rolled up to the old Pfizer building in Brooklyn at quarter to 7, I wasn't in prime condition to be handling sharp knives and cutting things. But I did it anyway from 7 to 2. We butchered fish. And then at the end of the shift, me and my three coworkers, we hosed off all the blood and the guts and the fish scales, and you know, we huddled up for our after-work treat. Sometimes it was pita bread with hummus, sometimes it was chips and salsa, sometimes it was snacks that we scammed from one of the hipster food startups down the hall. One time I baked cookies, but on this day, on this day, it was tequila. Hmm, <laughs> and not that bullshit with the red hat on the top, not Jose Cuervo, it was Don Julio, which isn't absolute top shelf, but it's pretty good stuff. <sighs> and I knew it was a terrible idea. I, like drinking might have been my fourth profession at that point. And I knew, I, I was good about it though. I behaved myself. I only drank alone at home in the dark. <laughs> never, never, ever, ever at work. After work doesn't count. That's different. That's off the clock. I never, I never passed out, man. Falling asleep on the couch doesn't count as passing out if it's your bed. <laughs> but I, I had a really, really hard time. I had a really hard time stopping after one drink. And I knew if I had that tequila, it would just be like crazy train, man. But I, I drank it anyway. <laughs> I drank it anyway. Because my reasoning was, you know, is life really worth living if you can't have one goddamn glass of tequila with your work buds? Right. Right. Is it worth living if you can't have three goddamn glasses of tequila with your work buds? Well, goddamn, after three glasses, generous pours of that stuff, I was feeling much, much better about my station in life. I mean, I was surrounded by awesome people who bring tequila to work. Man, I got to live with cats without dealing with any of the bullshit, any of the bullshit, like cleaning the litter box or clipping the nails. I didn't have to do any of that. 
And you know, the theater company wasn't making any money, but it's what I loved, right? And if you do what you love, it's, it's, it's priceless. It's priceless. I think a fourth glass <laughs> could have allowed me to solve the problem of world hunger. <laughs> but unfortunately, it was time to lock up and leave. I, I must have been kind of tipsy. Because uh, my, my coworkers were like, John, are you going to be okay? <laughs> and stupidly, idiotically, I, I just, I laughed at them and I waved goodbye. <laughs> and I had two hours to kill before my, my catering shift. I had two whole damn hours. And I could have gone to get food. But do you think I did? No. I didn't go get food. You know why? Because I'm not stupid. I'm not stupid. They feed us a free staff meal at catering shifts. Why would I pay precious, precious dollars on food when they're going to give me free stuff later? No, I went to a bar, man. Just one beer. I just had one. But one beer doesn't last for an hour and a half. Two beers doesn't last for an hour and a half unless you really stretch it. It's three, three. Three is what you want. That's just enough without seeming like a lush. <laughs> so when I rolled up to the USS Intrepid Air and Space Museum, uh, I had plenty of time to spare. I had like 15 minutes. The catering shift, <laughs> the catering shift was on a converted um, aircraft carrier, the USS Intrepid. So I was feeling pretty good. I was kind of giddy. I wasn't even thinking about the actual drudgery involved and walking around like a butler, carrying a tray, darting between tables, scooping up cocktail glasses, zipping around to the pantry, emptying the tray, and then going back out to do it again and again and again and again and again and again. I was kind of enjoying it, actually. It was like a game. How many cocktail glasses can I fit on my tray? How many wine glasses can I fit on my tray? How much can I put on my tray before it's too heavy to carry? Can I keep drinking without being caught? Yes. Yes, yes, for a while anyway. Uh, somewhere between stealing the rest of the craft beer at the reception and pre-plating the appetizer, someone notices that I'm drunker than Orson Welles shooting a champagne commercial. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know specifically what gave it away. I, I probably smelled flammable at that point. <laughs> but one second, I was very much in control. I mean, stupidly drunk, but very much in control. When you're good at drinking, you just you zip it up, and people might not know. And I was in control, and I was enunciating, and I was overperforming at my job. I was kicking ass. But one moment, it's that. And then the other moment, instead of serving the $300 a plate entree, the catering captain is making me sit down to eat it. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I wolfed down that beef tenderloin with red wine sauce on a bed of garlic mashed potatoes and bundled asparagus really quick. Too quick to enjoy it. Uh, and then the catering captain is telling me that I have to leave. Have you ever felt like you just disintegrated before? Like, just vaporized internally? That's what it felt like. I thought I was fired from the job. I, I couldn't even process it. I thought I was fired... I thought my life was over, but I wasn't. She just wanted me off the boat and out of sight before the tenderloin came back up. <laughs> which, <laughs> which it did. 
later. So I left. I mean, I, I guess I left. I don't remember disembarking. Uh, I do remember walking towards 8th Avenue on the dock, not being very cold despite the fact that it was freezing outside, feeling vaguely ashamed at what I'd just done, but mostly pleased with myself because I had a kick-ass dinner. <laughs> but really, really just, just wanting to go home and crawl into my bed, like my couch. A gurney is a bed, right? <laughs> I open my eyes, and by God, I'm in Times Square, baby. Times Square, where the lights are so bright that the flashers on the ambulance you're being loaded into are completely swallowed by the 20-story electric billboard for shampoo. And they load me in, and the door shut. <laughs> my eyes shut. And then when I open them again, I'm inside, I'm warm. But there's a goddamn cop right there staring at me. A big cop. He's like Fred Flintstone in a too small uniform. He's like, he's like a sausage getting ready to burst out of its casing. And to top it all off, he's got one meaty palm on the top of his gun. And he's just smirking at me. I... I don't know what happened. I, I'm, in my head, I was like, John, you punched a cop. You punched a goddamn cop. You punched a cop. You assaulted an officer. You're going to jail for the rest of your life. You're terrible. So I reached for my phone because I can't not take a selfie of this shit. <laughs> only only I, I can't. My hand won't go down, man. It won't move. And that's when I realized that Officer Flintstone has me handcuffed to the goddamn hospital bed. And, you know, that's when I saw, like, all the wires and stuff hooked up into me and the sensors, and, sh and I start pulling them out, and I'm freaking out like that kid on E.T., you know, where he's screaming, trying to rip the shit off, and the, the nurse comes in. She's like, no, sir, sir, please. Calm, sir, you have to leave those on. And she's really nice, which in, in this context means she's not yelling and she's not fingering a pistol. So I listened to her. And that's when I realized I'm buck-ass naked under my hospital gown. I don't know when that happened, but she fills me in. Apparently, I'm at Bellevue. <laughs> and uh, they had to put my soiled clothes in a, in, a, in, a, in a grocery bag underneath my bed. So at least I still have all my stuff. Well, she leaves me alone with Officer Friendly. And... I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying not to give him the satisfaction of seeing me panic because I can't afford a hospital stay. I can't. And I can't afford to go to jail. I, I can't even afford to buy new clothes. And I definitely can't afford to tell my parents that along with failing miserably with my life after college, along with failing pretty much miserably in college, I barely passed, that now it's just a thing for me to wake up in a hospital handcuffed to a bed. I can't do that. So... I make a plan for escape. <laughs> I decide to pick the lock on my handcuffs. With the cops standing right there looking at me. <laughs> it is impossible to dig out a ballpoint pen and a wine key from underneath you in your pukey clothes and pick your handcuffs. You can't do it. I've tried. <laughs> it is possible with the correct tools. So I tried another avenue. I tried to reason with him. Um, officer, uh, officer, I am so, so sorry for the trouble I have caused you. Please, c 
could you just please just unlock my cuffs? I swear to Heavenly Father, God Almighty, I will not leave. I will stay right here. Just please unlock me. I will not stay. I will have my buck ass naked out the door quicker than he can say yabba dabba do. But he doesn't do it. He just says that I'm handcuffed to the bed until the doctor gives the say so. Well, finally she comes, this doctor. And uh, man, I know I have to make a good, good case because even though he didn't say it, I'm, I'm just, I'm certain that it's up to this lady whether or not I spend the night in jail. 100,000 unpaid for theater degree <laughs> kicks in. And uh, you know, I just need one good performance and I can be back on the streets chain smoking my American spirits and so I just, I give it, I give it my all. I do the indignant citizen bit, you know. Am I under arrest? Am I under arrest? What crime have I committed? What crime? I want to see evidence. Do you have evidence of any wrongdoing? Do you have CCTV camera footage? Do you have witnesses? What is my crime? This is unconstitutional. I have rights. The cop, the cop says that he had to subdue me because I was a danger to myself and others. He says that I was on the train tracks trying to tango with the A train. <laughs> I say that, that's impossible. That's idiotic. I would never, ever, ever do that. I insist on being let out. And she, she says, she, she tries to be real tactful and she goes, well, your, your arms are sort of dirty. And I look, and they're just coated in the black grease, like dirt from down on the side. I was down on the subway tracks. I don't think I was doing anything untoward, but I was down there, for better or for worse. And then I, I insist on leaving, and she says, well, you know, you've got some lacerations on your face. And that's when I realized I, my face is bloody. My nose is bloody. I don't know, I guess, I guess, he had to subdue me. I don't know. I found bruises all over myself later. I don't know what happened still. I have no idea. But I stuck to my story. Hey, you know what? I had a little too much to drink. This isn't like me. This is abnormal. I just I had a really bad night. Please, you can send me home. I have an address. My name is John Klapko. This is my address. Da, 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 da. I'm sure I made a really good case naked, handcuffed to a hospital bed. <laughs> but she lets me go. She tells... Officer Flintstone to, to, to unlock me, and he does. And she tells me to get dressed, and I do. And that's when I find out that I used both pockets of my gigantic coat as barf bags. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Um, <laughs> and then I follow, to her, I follow the doctor to reception, uh, where I sign all the discharge papers and whatnot. Um, and I do that, and I finish, and I look up at her, and... I know that love at first sight exists because I experienced it. I, I don't know what happened. I can't explain it except for this angel, this goddess, this marvelous woman freed me from the handcuffs and from going to jail for the night. And I, I just, I decided that she was the one. I, I needed her. And yeah, I mean, she, she was like 15 years older than me, tw 20 maybe, and had bags under her eyes and had this really, really scary harsh Eastern European accent, but it didn't matter. She was my one true love. And I look at her with adoration, love. 
she looks back at me with, well, she looks back at me anyway. <laughs> and uh, I say, hick, and a bubble <laughs> flies out of my mouth. Uh, and I say, can I have your number? <laughs> and she didn't have to say no at that point. The flat, dead look in her eyes told me that she wished I had been left on the train tracks that night. <laughs> and as I trudged home through the snowstorm, reeking of puke and wasted potential, I wished that too. Thank you. In our last story, Crystal Frost learns a lot from being a portrait studio photographer, including that this job at holiday time, it's fresh hell. I'm clapping for myself. All right, you guys, I was living in Johnson City, Tennessee, pregnant, but not showing yet. When I walked into the photography by JCPenney studio and I asked for an application. Y'all shoot any pictures before? This is coming out of this very tiny, sweet woman who I absolutely adored immediately. And I said, no, but I like pictures. And I like kids. And then I was really aware of how creepy that sounded together. <laughs> and also how my nasally Midwestern accent sounded in front of her very sweet Southern accent. And I tried when I lived in Tennessee to smile every time I spoke because every word spoken by my Tennessean friends and relatives sounded like a carnival because it was highs and lows and effortless melodies and it was slow and it was inviting and I love a southern accent but despite my best efforts to sound cheery in the south I always sounded like I was just like happy to do your taxes like <laughs> there was nothing ever fun and inviting in my voice in the South. But the woman looked me up and down for a moment, and right before she started to reply, the phone rang. Hang on, honey. Photography by J.C. Panny. This is Gloria. Can I schedule you an appointment? And it was a phrase I would often hear over the course of the next few months after I did get that job, a phrase that I would say over and over and over again with a deeply put on southern accent, and I promise you that when I answer the phone, photography by J.C. Panny, this is Crystal, can I schedule an appointment? I didn't actually intend to do that with a southern accent, <laughs> but when I heard the same sentence over and over and over and over and over again over the course of days and weeks and months, my brain must have determined that that particular phrase should be said just like that, so I would answer the phone, Photography by J.C. Penny. this is Crystal, can I schedule you an appointment? And the person on the other side would say, yes. And then I would say, all right, when can I get you in? <laughs> and it was so utterly confusing for the poor person on the other line, and for me, and some people thought I was making fun, and other people just laughed, 
<laughs> I swear I was never making fun. It just happened. But I never did pick up a southern accent in my months spent in Tennessee. Just that one phrase. And the tools for portrait studio photography. It had been the entire summer working at Photography by JCPenney, so when I moved back to Traverse City in September, just a month before giving birth to my son, I walked into Sears Portrait Studio, this time ridiculously pregnant, swollen, asking for a job. And my soon-to-be boss pretended not to notice that I was very pregnant because that would be illegal. But she did ask <laughs> something interesting. She said, when would you be available? <laughs> and I said I was planning to take like four to six weeks off after my son was born, early October. And she seemed relieved that I acknowledged the forming human in my abdomen and said, that's perfect. We'll need people with at least some experience during the holidays. Now, I had never been a department store photographer during the holidays, just the fun summer in Tennessee. But for the next month, before giving birth to my child, I was mostly trained on equipment and the sales process for selling the photos of sleeping babies and screaming toddlers and dads that clearly didn't want to be there. So when I went away to have my baby, I felt confident that when I got back, I'm like, I got this, this is fine. And so I returned about six weeks later and it was mid-November, and all hell had broken loose. It was Christmas season in a portrait photography studio. And it was right then that I had to learn the four unspoken categories of what it meant to be a portrait studio photographer. Kids, coupons, guilt, and making a complete ass of yourself. Unspoken. It was also during that time that I had to learn the four unspoken truths of a day in the life of a Sears portrait photographer. Getting brutally yelled at by terrifying mothers. Crying. Counting the number of times that dads and grandpas and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and even moms would roll their eyes. More crying. Swallowing the deep rage that brewed inside me. And crying again. So those unspoken truths of my daily um, life all ended with this last sort of daydream of walking out of the studio screaming, your kid is an asshole just like you. I hate you all. Ripping off my light blue button-up shirt that defined me as an employee, grabbing my very see-through bag of employee materials running bare-chested through the electronics department and saying, ha, 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 I'm free! <laughs> and it was at this particular point in my life, though, that I can tell you with um, a fair amount of confidence that I did experience a lot of life things. But I swear to you, good people, you wonderful people, I swear on all that is good in the world that there is nothing more terrifying, more life-altering and heinous than a waiting room full of sweaty families <laughs> and intolerant toddlers and pissed-off parents wearing matching reindeer sweaters while looking at their watches because we were running 45 minutes behind... And we were always at least 45 minutes behind. 
But it wasn't because we, the humble photographers in light blue button-ups and khakis, like to torture you. It was because those of you that were waiting, you were in such a hurry to get into that studio. But the moment you got into the studio, you were not in a hurry anymore. You became so focused on building this memory in between screaming at your partners and threatening your children, you would always find a fresh new hell. This is what we found in every one of those studios in the form of, say, a poop explosion in Studio Two. A five-year-old who had been eating candy for a solid hour suddenly throwing up on the angel wings worn by his sister. And the unrelenting new mom who promises that her two-week-old newborn baby smiles all the time at home. So even though we've been trying to get this picture taken for an hour, she insists we should keep trying in Studio 3. But aside from the angry mob in matching outfits demanding holiday togetherness that would be captured under the hot studio lights, there was, in fact, the fact that I had just had a baby, that I was nursing said baby. Yeah, you know where this is going. <laughs> and that even with my very best intentions to pump my milk-filled breasts every four hours, every time a baby cried in that studio, <laughs> Niagara Falls <laughs> shone through my light blue shirt. And I would walk in shame to the sales <laughs> desk at Sears Portrait Studio, which is another aspect. The sales philosophy of Sears Portrait Studio was, and I'm paraphrasing here, if you don't buy pictures of your family, you are a garbage person. <laughs> it was guilt. Number one sales tactic, guilt. Because Sears, like so many other store photo studios of their time, had a bait and switch approach, right? They would capture the moments of your children. They would entice you with mailers and coupons that boasted 99 photos for $9.99. And we would send you these things with messages of, don't let time slip away. Capture the moment. And you would call because you didn't want to let time slip away. Then we would take the photos of your precious child and the hard and fast corporate suit wearers at Sears, the hard and fast rule of this package price was that the first posed photo taken of that child that wasn't blinking or blurry or looking away was always, without a doubt, always to be the package photo. It was in the fine print even, no matter what. And that first photo, though, by design, was never a good photo. In fact, it, we were told, we were taught that it won't be the cutest photo. And we would let parents have a little thought that they had control over this, right? Um, since in the beginning of their session, we would let them choose what they wanted. Do you want a full body of your baby or do you want like a close-up? And then we would be like, what do you want? Like a cool background? Do you want any props? Any of that stuff. We would ask them these things. They felt like they had control. And then we would take that first photo and then we had to take a mandatory five photographs after that. And every photo after that was more adorable than the last one. So then, 
Armed with the six photos, we would walk over to the sales desk, and the conversation was a little something like this. So here's your package picture. You get 99 of these for $9.99. And here are your other photos, and you can get a sheet of these, one sheet, for $15 each. Oh, my God. Look at how cute. Oh, this is precious. You should submit this to a modeling agency. This is the next Gerber baby. I have never in my life seen anything cuter than this photo. I'm telling you the truth. And the parents would always ask, like, can't you just make this adorable picture, the third one you took, the package picture? And even though my heart would sink, we were trained. No, I'm sorry, I can't. Which was total bullshit, because we absolutely could every time. But we were told, never, ever, ever change the package picture. It was forbidden by the corporate suits. And parents, come on, you could rarely just settle on the package picture. The dream of like walking away with 99 photos for $9.99 to share with your friends and families was shattered as you saw this bewildered mom like clutching her child in one hand and a receipt for the $9.99 package with an additional four sheets in the other hand and like wondering how 10 bucks turned to 70 before you even knew it. And that was the point of this whole thing. So if you've been paying attention, we've covered three of the four steps as working as a department store uh, photographer. Kids, they poop and they throw up on everything. Coupons, Satan himself would never have thought of a sales tactic so torturous. And guilt, because even the parents that walked away from the sales tactics were wrought with guilt. And I gotta tell you, in full disclosure, I often broke that rule. All the time, actually. So when I would go and sit down at the sales desk with the family and I figured out that actually nobody's going to figure this out, and they would say, oh, I don't know, I really like this one, and I would look around the room and then I would be like, which one did you want? <laughs> and then they would say, number four right there. And I would be like, never speak of this again. But of course, they spoke of it all the time. And all of a sudden, I had all these requests for people. Like, I'd like Crystal to take my pictures. <laughs> and I was the most requested photographer, but I had the lowest sales. <laughs> Nobody could figure it out. <laughs> but this leaves us with the final and most disgusting step of all, the step that required making a complete ass of oneself. And despite the digital equipment, despite the perfect lighting and the automatic focus, taking a picture of a group or an adult, and especially a kid, is really friggin' hard, you guys. And so when a child wouldn't smile, we, the ones wearing khaki and light blue polo shirts, would become clowns. And we would be literally jumping up and down and squeaking toys and shaking rattles and blowing spit bubbles and snapping our fingers and rolling our tongues, making this, like, Weird, like, <laughs> just to get this baby's attention, guttural noises coming from grown adults. And finally, the child might make eye contact with you, and you'd go, <gasps> who's a big boy? Where's the baby? Where's the baby? There he is. It's a baby. And when none of that worked, 
when it had taken over the allotted 30 minutes of time and you saw the manager like lurking in the shadows and you heard the mob of people waiting outside beginning to get restless, you knew it was time to get serious. It was time to pull out the frog. (laughs) And I would. I would find the frog in his secret compartment in the prop closet. And with great deliberation, I would place that frog made of soft cloth and filled with beans, covered in baby slobber and shame, (laughs) firmly on top of my head. And I carefully approached my squishy baby target, slowly at first, so as not to startle him. Can you blow this frog off my head? And the child would look in utter bewilderment at the grown woman approaching him. And I would repeat, this time a little bouncier, can you blow this frog off my head? And still puzzled, the child seemed to think, yes, I I believe I can. (laughs) I think I can blow that frog off your head. And that's when I knew I had him. And so I would shout one final time with the high-pitched enthusiasm of a desperate woman. I would screech, can you throw this, blow this frog off my head, can you? And suddenly, taking the bait, he would prove that he could, and he would blow the frog off my head. And I jerked backward, and the frog falling to the floor, and the child beaming at his accomplishment, just in time for me to snap the picture, melting mom's heart, leaving dad in tears. (laughs) Victory. I worked at Sears Portrait Studio for almost three years before completely, completely switching careers. And I did get a lot better at taking the photos, but it never got easier. And I learned a lot. I learned how to pose an entire family using nothing but chairs and columns and blocks and people holding each other's elbows. (laughs) And I did master the art of making babies smile, but mostly I learned patience And I learned that it's okay to break the rules when they're stupid. (laughs) But regardless, sometimes I think of those far gone years. I mean, these are the years before digital cameras and selfies and at-home printers. And I hope that on a mantle somewhere is a Sears portrait of a baby that I took, sitting maybe next to a senior portrait that someone else took of that same baby. And that maybe sometimes mom and dad could look at those two photos and they don't think of the crying or the 45 minutes behind or the studio's attempt to guilt them into bilking and buying more photos. I like to imagine that instead they might look at those photos as bookends of their child's childhood. And maybe they'll smile thinking of the years between the two pictures and the first steps, and the first words, and the skinned knees, and the slamming doors of teenagehood, and the good memories and accomplishments and the challenging times. And maybe they'll see the laughter and the tears. And in that moment, it just warms my heart to think that in the span of just a few decades, that I played a tiny little role in capturing those moments of a parent's most treasured treasure. Thank you.
So as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, Ty Schmidt is here with us. Ty and his wife, Johanna, founded Norte as a pro-walk, pro-bicycle, safe routes to school advocacy program. And he's here to talk with us about our next theme in sickness and in health. So first things first, Ty, welcome to the studio. Thank you, Karen. Yeah, happy to have you here. And uh, actual disclosure, we're not in the Hearsay Studio today. We are recording at the uh, Traverse Area District Library. Um, so we'll try not to make this too academic for all of our listeners. There's just something so, I mean, I'm staring at books while we talk. No, I love <laughs> it. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, this is why uh, one of the gems of Traverse City. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited to do it here. Awesome. Yeah. And thank you to the library for letting us do this here. Yeah. Um, so uh, moving to the library was actually to accommodate you, Ty, because you uh, have chosen not to drive. Thank you, Karen. <laughs> Um, and everyone should know that we are recording this during the polar vortex. So I have to ask, did you ride your bike here? I did. And I did. uh, I was actually downtown earlier at the beta transfer station with another meeting and I, and I wrote and it's sunny and it's nice. And the the, the key, I mean, it just, my face hurts. I mean, there is some face burn, but, uh, it wasn't far and, uh, the, the roads were actually perfect. So it was great. Yeah, no, I uh, I was very fortunate today that I was shoveling my driveway and someone with a plow took pity on me. He drove right past me and then he backed up. He said, do you need help? And I said, that would be amazing. Awesome. And I said, how much would you ask for? And he did the most, mer- the, like the, the most wonderful gesture in communication, which is the the wave off and head yeah. shake, like, don't yeah. worry about it. I yeah. was like, I, I love you, there's mister. Some, there's some great people <laughs> up Mr. here. Mr. Plowman. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I feel like I still have a little face burn going here. Um, you know, the funny thing is I actually learned that you don't have a driver's license before I met you mm. because I was teaching a summer storytelling class through the National Writer Series, and your kids were in that class. Yeah. And um, one of them was telling us a story that involved taking the bus to Leelanau <laughs> and they got off at the wrong stop. Right, right. <laughs> and it was just mentioned as an aside that you don't have a driver's license. And so I just, I've always thought that's amazing. I mean, like I live kind of far from town. So yeah. like what, what is the farthest you will, what's, what's your hard limit on uh, how far you'll go? Well, I mean, it varies, but I, I can, if I can get there somewhere within an hour, I think like I do a lot of programming at school. So I would bike out to Westwoods Elementary. I'm not sure where that, if you know where that is, but that's about an hour away on, okay. on Long Lake. And I think it's something that is just part of how I, you know, schedule my day. And if it's too far, I just say no, you yeah. know, or, or I bum a ride and I'm not against sitting in cars. You know, I got some very right. patient friends and understanding wife who often give me rides places, but, uh, I try to keep within this, I, I'm going to say a 20 mile radius okay. and, um, you know, giving up my driver's license was a choice, you know, that I did, uh, 16 years ago when I moved to Traverse city. And, um, for the most part, great, happier for it, you know, healthier for it. Uh, wouldn't uh, do it over again, but it's, uh, it's, it's just a choice. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, if I could make the choice, I would make the choice, but I cannot. <laughs> and yeah. I'll tell you why. I have a very conflicted relationship with bikes. Um, I have a history of dating bike messengers who were always way more hardcore about bicycles than I was. I remember uh, one boyfriend, he asked me, what kind of bicycle would you want? And I said, you know, like a hybrid, you know. And uh, so he got me something that people use on the tour. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it was way too much bike for me. Right. Um, but this is also the same boyfriend who um, he said, what kind of instrument? instrument do you want to learn how to play I'll get you an instrument and I said upright bass so he got me drums okay <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I think he really just needed us right to, to, to pretend it was for me yeah um but yeah so I used to I'm from Chicago and it's a little 
treacherous to drive in. I remember like cars would tailgate me yeah. on my bicycle. And I just, I'm really afraid of yeah. that. And I think that's a common story, right? I think you, we get this traumatic experience w- with whatever it is, but particularly like how we get around, like, cause we're, we're definitely vulnerable, right? I mean, it's, uh, and I think it takes one bad experience. And I hear that all the time, you know, from, from adults mostly like you know uh, this happened uh, I will never get on a bike again right and then we hear some scary stories you know that Traverse City has several of of tragedies right and mm-hmm. and uh, there is definitely risk in, in how we get around but uh, you know me I'm trying to tell the, the positive stories and the positives and right, all the many right. wins that come with with transportation options and, and so just getting around on my bike be, you know we, we made a priority when we moved to town to to live in town that it's we way overpaid and uh, but you know it was a choice that we made early and that it's a priority just for our family so uh, bike to work bike to the library bike to the grocery store you know bike to get my kids from school so mm-hmm. uh, not always easy but uh, again um, or you know and then I try not to preach because I you know, everybody's different right? right you know and I try not to <laughs> judge or but it's it's something that I think once people get a taste and they get confident with it, that they, they can just integrate it into their life. Yeah. So actually, if I put in a like submit an official request to be preached to. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, how do you convince people who have that story to try it again? Well, and I think a lot of it is, you know, what is the angle? And I think from me, like some some people are like, this is an economical way to get around. I mean, but getting around your bike is cheap. You know, there's no insurance. There's no gas. There's no upkeep. Uh, the other angle is health and happiness. You know, like I am way more happier on my bike. You know, I'm more creative. Uh, you know, I clear my head. I go home happy. You know, so I'm a better person for it. And then there's the environmental aspects, right? So like treading lightly on the earth, less fossil fuels. Uh, you know, that bikes can in fact be a climate solution. So depends on who I'm talking to, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I try to, if they approach me with that, like I will preach. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. And that's <laughs> like Norte's job basically is to try to not just be bikes versus cars, but just again to provide uh, different opportunities for people to get around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm so, I used to ride my bike a lot when I was a kid. Um, we had a lot of trails where I grew up, um, or at least bike paths. And, um, yeah, like I'm so out of practice. So hearsay and North Day sometimes do these um, bike to story events. Uh, yeah. We've done two now, which have been a lot of fun. So although the fun. weather gods seem to hate us. Yeah, it's rough. <laughs> but I mean, for the most part, I think really cool. And, and bringing in parks too, the idea of public place and telling stories and connecting. I, I, you know, I hope we do it again this May. Yeah, no, me too. I, I know that people really enjoy it a lot. Mm-hmm. But I was also very embarrassed at the last one where uh, someone said to me, I think you're tires might be low yeah. and so I got I said on the microphone does anyone have a pump and some gentleman came forward and he <laughs> was like I was basically riding two flat tires and I had no idea right yeah <laughs> but that's the thing you know everybody's there we can't know it all and I think like the knowledge and you know like once we know and that's like Norte does with kids like you know here's the ABCs of checking your bike you know I wasn't taught that I don't mm-hmm. think a lot of us were but once you know um you know, it's simple. And then, yeah. you know, to, to, to get a pump or to know where to find a pump, you know, piece of cake. Yeah. I, m- I may have to sit in with the kids for the, uh, the bike instruction. <laughs> you know, and that's something I think Norte is <laughs> trying to do better is not just be kids only, to, but to provide some education to, yeah. to people like us, too. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So do you do other forms of exercise or are you 100% bicycle? Well, it's funny because I, I grew up playing like all the sports, right? Mm-hmm. You know, all the organized sports in high school, basketball, soccer, men's volleyball was a thing up in Manitoba. Um, and now I play zero organized sports, uh-huh. but I'm more active, I think, than 
ever. You know, I, uh, I run uh, in the winters. Uh, I've also come to learn that walking is also cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so Norte used to be youth cycling. We've dropped the cycling because, um, you know, that walking is, can be part of ordinary life and can be very easy and effective, uh, you know, exercise. So, uh, mostly I just ride my bike and, and, and run in the winter, but, um, I used to play a ton of hockey, mm -hmm. you know, and a, and a ton of basketball. And now I'm, uh, kind of living vicariously through my kids and doing the sports that they're doing as well. Awesome. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the spirit of the Evil Knievel t-shirt that I happen to be wearing right I now. I <laughs> didn't notice that. Right on, I Karen. love this shirt so, so much. Cool. Um, do you ever get on motorbikes or are you strictly? Um, let's see. I do not get on motorbikes. My last time on a motorbike was actually uh, in high school with a buddy and my leg got caught in the back <gasps> of the tire and Ooh. I had this painful reminder of uh, the scar and this burn on my leg so I'm a little bit traumatic just like you're traumatic a little bit with bicycles that I don't know if I'm gonna get back on it's just too much speed yeah you know <laughs> you have no need for speed <laughs> I have not, like you know 20 miles an hour on a bike great right. you know, I don't need to go 60 <laughs> excellent <laughs> so uh, since you exercise so much um, I imagine like you probably hardly ever get sick is that a fact that that is a fact uh, knock on wood uh, I don't of course I get the flu shot um, try to eat right, wash my hands, do all those things. I'm a physical therapist, so I think a lot of that public health uh, things get driven into us. So mm -hmm. I, I try to do all the healthy things, uh, and I don't remember really uh, getting uh, sick. Um, I don't know. It's been a few years. Lucky you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hardly get sick, but the last I, this past winter, I've been hit a couple times. I'm yeah. actually like, I don't, I, I'm, I'm, perilously close to germophobia <laughs> really yeah it's <laughs> funny like even with little kids like I, you know i don't know like there's an immunity and a you know a herd effect but you know like like boys um i don't know they just they're germs but i think that made me stronger a little bit now and yeah. and again <laughs> i don't i can't i think it's been three four years since i got the uh, sick oh you're so lucky yeah yeah no i remember very clearly uh, last summer someone came up to say hello to me and like and like kiss me on the mouth and I'm not a mouth kisser so that was a yeah, little like what yeah, just happened to do that, right. <laughs> but, but then like right after I said oh okay hi how are you and the response I got was oh and I'm so sick it's yeah. like then why did you just put your yeah. mouth on my mouth that's not cool <laughs> so that maybe guy. that's why I get sick yeah, because stay away from people <laughs> like that right <laughs> um so d do you have any have you had any strange ailments that you're willing to tell us about? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think like my strangest thing, I don't know if anyone out there has heard of alopecia, but it's basically this spotty baldness um, that is an autoimmune disease. So five years ago, like I started uh, getting one little bald spot on my head and then another and then another. I'm like, what is going on? And it turns out like that's a thing. And it, it came out of nowhere. And then three years later it it left out of nowhere yeah i'm looking at you and your full head of hair right yeah, here it so. Is. so there was three years um where i shaved my head bald to the skin because of alopecia yeah so uh, how did you know that it was coming back like for real like, like the, the spots started getting smaller and oh, i would okay. like and then i would have johanna like measure them like is this just me or is like <laughs> this getting smaller yeah and it was like the most exciting thing ever like it's funny like i don't know like i try not to be too vain uh-huh oh you're you're human but <laughs> You know, like I got, I'm ugly bald, you know, <laughs> and I have an ugly head and like, I was like, we went out and partied and I didn't have to shake my head anymore and it was warmer in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I had three years where I was bald. Huh. It's pretty weird. Yeah. 
no, no, speaking of things coming out of nowhere, um, uh, for me, I woke up one day, uh, the day after the Cubs won the World Series, I woke up and I had Bell's palsy. Yeah. Um, like, just like half my face was paralyzed. Same thing. It was the craziest thing. Like, no warning. Um, my favorite thing was my friend, though, who suggested that um, I was so excited my face melted. <laughs> like, yeah. I was so excited about the Cubs. I'd see that all the time in the <laughs> clinic, right? You know, like yeah. the, the facial nerve palsy and... Um, but you never know. That's the thing. Like, you know, then one day, you know, you're great. And the next day you're not. Yeah. And life is crazy. The body is strange. Yes, it is. <laughs> and especially what's also strange is that, like, I immediately went on prednisone, which I did not want to do. Right. <laughs> but then, like, everything righted itself within three days. Yeah. Like, that was, which is way faster than I was expecting. Yeah. Um, but again, vanity, where I was like, how am I going to walk around with yeah. this? Because that's just not... Yeah, yeah, it's your face. It's your face. You know, that's what we as humans see, and and but that's uh, as a PT, you know, in the clinic, I, I would just like give your body a chance, you know, do one thing different. Now, president's own, you know, that's a, you know powerful steroid, and that's what the, you know the indicated thing is. But like chronic pain or or you know arthritic things, you know, do one thing different, give your body a chance, and the body's amazing. Yeah, really, <laughs> and you know, and you give it a chance, and you never know what it's going to do. Yeah, excellent. So. uh I'm going to uh, mention the fact that uh, at the uh, open mic in October, which was to benefit North Day, that thank was you. your first time it telling was. a story on the It was. Stage. So thank you for having me. I don't really enjoy it, to be honest. I get really <laughs> nervous about it. Um, but I think I, 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 like this, I like getting out of my comfort zone. I like um, getting stressed and worried. I think uh-huh. it makes you feel alive a little bit, you know, but that was a fun story and uh, like a story of coincidence. Uh, of of how Johanna and I met and um, kind of a love story. It was and it was a very cool experience. And yeah. It was a fun night. Awesome, yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, the hearsay audiences are so welcoming. That's the place to do it. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that's the place to do it. I did one on a TED stage and that was awful. And I about freaked out and curled up on a ball and ran home. And oh. <laughs> you know, like so I have that experience to like a very chill, laid back, very fun and positive experience. You know, so. Uh, maybe I'll come back and do another one. Excellent. Yeah, that's I, that was my next point. Okay. Should <laughs> <back>. <laughs> we should always do more than once the things we hate to see if we really hated it. <laughs> well, there's a lot of power in stories, and I think we all have our stories. And, and, and I think when we hear other people's stories, I think, you know, it's just a, a, a great way to connect. And so I'm, I'm, I'm so happy here. You know, Traverse City has hearsay. I think yeah. it's such a cool thing. Thank you, and we are really happy to have North Day, and look forward to uh, the Wednesday community rides in the summer. It's coming. We just got to get to spring. Not yeah. counting the days, but we're close. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all the time we have. Thanks for joining us today, Thank Ty. Thank you, Karen. It's awesome. Yeah, and good luck riding your bike out there. It is cold. Yes. <laughs> we're tough. We'll dress smart. Yes. All right. Thanks. All right. Hearsay is a live storytelling show staged monthly in Traverse City, Michigan. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Our podcast is produced by A.J. Scott. Thank you to our venue sponsor, The Workshop Brewing Company, and another thanks to our in-studio guest, Ty Schmidt. Find out more about Hearsay at our website, hearsaystorytelling.com. This is Karen Stein, Hearsay's founder and creative director. Join us in February when our theme is In Sickness and in Health. Thanks for listening.